Hey everybody, it's Kendall from Recording Lounge. It's January 1st, 2013. We made it. New year. Hope you guys had a great holiday season. Hope you guys had a great December. I'm sorry I didn't put out a show, but um, again, it's one of those times where everyone should be spending time with their families and hopefully only lusting over gear in their spare time. So um, anyway, today we have a great show about bass. So bass is sort of a topic that a lot of people misunderstand. And I always like to do shows over topics that are confusing or sort of hard to understand for just the average recording engineer or the average guitarist who records himself or the average drummer who records himself or the average singer that records themselves and, you know, all these things where people are, they're not really bass players. Um, to be honest, I only know of maybe two bass players that um, are engineers. However, they're great. They're really great. Um, I know that some of my favorite engineers actually are bass players and um, or started as bass players. And uh, so that's a really interesting thing. Why is that? Why is it that bassists seem to have this sort of like underdog tuned ear to the recording world? Well, um, today we're going to talk about bass and how to fit it in a mix and how to record it and everything from from the bass itself, from selecting the bass to, you know, strings and uh, into recording, into mixing and compression and everything. So it's going to be a pretty thorough show. I hope you guys will enjoy it. All right, so the first thing that we have to do is decide what sort of bass we're going to use. And, um, you know, right here I've got a Fender American Jazz Bass, which is a very standard bass to be used in the studio. Um, among some other really standard basses are like the Fender P Bass and, you know, sometimes even the Rickenbacker uh, Bass, you know, that classic sort of thuddy Rickenbacker sound that's awesome. Um, there's lots of other great basses out there from Spectre. And uh, I know a guy that religiously uses basses from Lakeland, um, which is kind of like, I won't say exactly a Fender knockoff, but kind of in a way. They're made like Fenders should be, but sort of with some improvements and some little details. They're almost a custom company. They're kind of a boutique thing, but they're awesome basses. So first thing we have to decide is once you get the bass sound that you want, you know, once you know the bass sound that you want, you know, then you can record it. But how do you even get the sound that you want. Well, I will say that uh, when in doubt, a Fender Jazz Bass or a P Bass, a good one, will do the trick. Something with nice pickups, something with lots of sustain, something with lots of, you know, attitude and soul and honestly lots of low end. Um, now, I prefer Jazz Basses and P Basses just because they're a classic sound and, I, and they're really easy to get good sounds out of. You know, if you string up a jazz bass or, a, or a, you know, an American jazz bass or an American P bass with brand new strings and you plug it in, you'll be amazed. So here's the first thing. Let's say that you've decided, okay, I need a little more aggression, then maybe you should get a P bass or use a P bass um, or something with a little more of a bite. The P basses tend to have a little more presence. Uh, the jazz basses are a little more mellow um, and they have a little more of a sort of big soft bottom as opposed to the P basses have a little more of a tight bottom end. And uh, that's great. Either one is great. Um, you can kind of finagle a jazz bass a little bit to, to make it sound more like a P bass if you um, have one where you can adjust the, the neck pickup and the, and the bridge pickup. Then you can uh, sort of roll down the neck pickup a little bit and, uh, and just use a little more of the bridge, and that can sound a little closer to a P bass, a little. Um, then the next consideration you have is, you know, what strings, because you should put new bass strings on it. And for proof of that theory, I'm going to play you um, what it sounds like to put on new strings. So actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to play you a little bit um, with old strings, which is sort of, and these aren't even that old, like these strings are maybe a month old. You know, and some bass players leave their strings for a lot longer, um, and which I don't recommend if you have sweaty hands or if you gig a whole lot, you know, or if it's being played in the studio a lot. I feel like you should replace your strings pretty often. I know that it's expensive, um, but even if you get cheap 
bass strings or cheaper bass strings and replace them more often, you know, then that's that's at least a good compromise. Um, it's also cheaper to buy bass strings in bulk. You know, um, it'd be easier to spend a hundred bucks on, you know, four packages of bass strings and just use them, use them up. You know, and it is expensive, but if you want good tone, if you want that sort of piano-like sound out of a bass, that really like clear, crisp sound, um, you're about to hear what that'll sound like. So I'm going to play you just uh, for like 30 seconds with uh, some older strings. Like I said, these aren't even that old. And then what I'm going to do is replace them with brand new strings, um, just some simple, you can get them anywhere, D'Addario, XL, bass strings, um, nothing fancy. And uh, then you'll hear the difference. It's pretty significant. So here is first a jazz bass being played with semi-old strings. Now, one thing you may notice is that on those sort of low sustain notes, once you get down to the low notes, which I've still got the bass uh, plugged up here, so I'll actually record this as I'm talking. Um, on these low notes, the sustain is very uh, bad. As well as on these sort of high notes, on the 12th fret of the low string, this is kind of what that sounds like. So it has sort of a thuddy sound. Now, if you want that sound, you know, if you want a little more of a vintage sound, um, like a Beatles-y sound, um, go for it. You know, that is more of the sound, that more thuddy, you know, I know that was recorded over the talkback, but a little more of a thuddy, muted sound. You know, if you're doing some sort of a, uh, like a, soul thing or a funk thing you know you might need that however um, I feel like if you're doing anything with lots of sustain you know and you're playing with your fingers and you're not playing with a pick then you're probably gonna need something with a lot more clarity in the in the sustain so I'm gonna hook up some new strings and uh, this will just take me about 10 minutes fortunately though you won't have to wait so in about five seconds you will hear bass with new strings okay so new strings have been put on the bass. <laughs> that was quick. Um, but I will say a word of advice. Once you replace the strings, a few little setup tips for a bass. You want the bass to resonate as a single piece, even if it's got a bolt-on neck. Um, and so, you know, generally guitars that are neck through, basses that are neck through, meaning, you know, the, the neck is glued permanently onto the body, or it's a single piece, which is more rare, but they resonate better, they have more sustain, and that's because it's a single large piece rather than a neck and a body trying to resonate together, though they're separate weights and everything. So, some tips. First, down on the bridge of the bass, you should tighten all the screws as tight as you can. So you want that bridge to be really solid onto the bass. So, just double check, tighten them by hand, not with a drill, essentially as tight as they can go. Now be careful, don't strip the screws, so tighten all those, tighten all the screws on the pick guard as well. So it's essentially as tight as they can go, so tighten them all the way down. And uh, same with any control plates, you know, or anything like that. Um, tighten all those down as tight as they can go. Tighten down, which I'm doing right now. And um, that's so that all these pieces are tightening as, so that they're closer and closer to being a single piece. So tighten all these nice and tight. Now uh, flip the guitar over and make sure the neck is bolted on. Now this one you really should be careful on, but try to tighten the neck as tight as possible and go in the X pattern. So tighten bottom right, top left, then move over and do top right, bottom left. 
and just keep doing little turns at a time until that neck is as tight in there as possible. You want that to be really solid. Now also after the strings are on and you sort of tuned it up a little, um, set the bass on your lap so the back of the bass is uh, on, your, on the top of your legs and uh, stretch the strings by grabbing a cloth or something. Grab the strings and pull them upward. So don't pull them to the sides really a ton, but pull them up and out from about the, you know, where the neck meets the body. Pull them from that sort of center, center point lightly so that they are stretched and they're put into place. And then uh, tune until it fits right. And then you might have to stretch the strings twice, but uh, that will keep the, the guitar in tune uh, while you're recording. Okay, so ours is in tune for recording now and ready to go. So I'll play you basically a very similar thing to what I played before with the new strings. Wow! So those sound a lot better. Lots of sustain, lots of clarity. And if you don't remember what the old one sounds like, I will A-B them for you so you can hear the big difference. And I mean, a lot of people will go on and on about, you know, this piece of gear, that piece of gear, and how amazing things can sound. And, you know, in the long run, some of the best investments you can make are under 50 bucks. Things like drum heads, bass strings, guitar strings. You should put them on. When in doubt, put them on every time you record a new song. I mean, you, you really should. Um, I mean, you can get a new snare drum head, if nothing else, or new bass strings, you know, for 25 bucks, you know, or less. So, uh, right now, I put on the uh, Diodario Nickel Wound EXL 170 TP strings, which are uh, round wound, uh, just regular light gauge bass strings. They're Somewhat bright, I guess, but I'll A-B the clips before and after so you can hear the big difference. Now the sustain section before and after. So much more sustain, so much more life and clarity. And, you know, that was a cheap thing to do, really. And, uh, you know, so if you want your recordings to sound good, and if you want them to sound alive and, you know, like a bass should sound, you know, it's my contention that a guitar or bass or a drum is intended to sound like it sounds with new strings and new heads. I mean, maybe that's just me, but I feel like that's how they're designed to sound. It's kind of like... Anything, really. I mean, anything is made to sound great out of the factory, and then over years or over months or whatever, it sounds worse, and then you have to, you know, work it up and make it sound good again. Well, and obviously, as you can hear on bass, it makes a big difference in the clarity. I mean, it almost sounds like you've EQ'd it and everything, and you haven't done anything other than replace the strings. Okay, so all those clips, by the way, were, have been recorded straight in, just direct in through an API 312 preamp. Um, it's a pretty standard preamp on a lot of things in the studio, you know, and uh, the first thing we're going to do is demo some different preamps. So the preamps honestly will sound very similar, 
but they have slight differences, and that's sort of the nature of the beast. And uh, so first we're going to play you a little bit through the API again, and then we'll play you some through a Neve style of Intec preamp, and then we'll play you some through a Tube preamp. And now a Vintec. And now a Universal Audio Tube preamp. My favorite preamp out of all those for recording bass is the Universal Audio. And uh, it sort of provides a little option for driving the input a little bit and turning down the output to get just a little more grit out of the bass, just a touch more, and just which will kind of give it some uh, sort of exciting sounding top end, sort of like a little more stringy, which I, I really like. You don't have to do anything to it other than just record it that way. You don't have to EQ it or anything. Now, if I were to go back and listen to these clips, you know, multiple times, which I did, um, I would say the Vintech had a little more of like a subby bottom, I guess. And um, there was no EQ on any of these clips, but on some of the low notes, the, the Vintech preamp had just a little more clarity in the low notes, on the low strings. Um, or, and maybe not even clarity, maybe just more bottom, more sub sound. Um, the API had a really nice smooth top end that uh, sounds really good for sliding, you know, if, if someone needs to slide, it's not harsh or anything. Um, but the UA sort of has the most general all-around tone that I like. And, you know, it's a little less noticeable when they're all dry, because all of these are obviously dry. But when you start compressing and EQing the bass to fit it in the mix, you start to have preferences. And, uh, you know, so, and that that's just over years of having all these preamps in my studio and just trying them all on different things and um, also having bass players in here and having them a b them and just say which one do you like and almost all of them choose the ua and you know after time and time again they choose the ua they just like it more so you know whatever works it works for me it works for them so that makes me happy so okay so the next thing we have to decide is do we want to use any sort of amp or pedals or anything well Generally, um, if the bass amp is good, then why not? Why not record with a bass amp as well? Um, I rarely will take just the bass amp. I almost always, always take the DI. And um, the only case when I don't take the DI is if I'm doing something live and the bassist is like, no, this is the exact sound I want. I don't even want it blended with the DI. And they tell me that. You know, They tell me that's what I want and we can get it, you know, and it sounds great, you know, but even then sometimes I'll say, well, I'm going to take the DI just in case, you know, we don't like the sound, then we can always send it back out through the amp and reamp it, and uh, which is a very common thing to do. So I think it's always a safe thing to take the direct. You might as well. Now, another popular sort of device that is uh, really common on bass is something called a Tech 21 Sans Amp. Now, sans being a word that means without or not or, you know, some sort of variation of that, sans amp. You know, you don't need an amp. It's not an amp. It's without an amp. Um, but it has sort of an ampy sound to it. So I'll play you a demo of me playing straight through, and uh, then I'll turn on the sans amp, and you can hear the difference. For these clips, I basically took the DIs that we already recorded with the new strings so that the strings changing and adjusting won't affect the clips. So I'm going to take the clip we used earlier to demo the new strings and send it out through a reamp box. I have the radial reamp box, um, which is great. I highly recommend it. And uh, I'm sending that out through um, the to the Universal Audio preamp, um, just going straight through that. Uh, just to get that sound, and then going to the Sans amp, and then through the UA.
Okay, so this next clip is going through the Sans amp, and uh, I'm going to be tweaking the knobs as it's playing. So uh, don't get freaked out. It's not doing this on its own. I'm messing with the knobs. Basically, on the Sans amp here, you've got like uh, a level control, a blend control, treble and bass. You've got a presence control, which sort of brings up the stringiness, and then you've got a drive knob that brings up distortion. Um, so you can, uh, I'll be messing with it and uh, then I'll finally come to a point that I'll leave it. Okay, so as you can see, there are quite a few sounds on tap with a Sans amp, and for 200 bucks, it's hard to beat. Um, it's, you know, a good bass amp, a good bass amp that will record well and do lots of different sounds. You know, it's pretty expensive, and to get a big bass cab, like an 810 or a 410 or something like that, that's a lot of real estate taken up. And I know a lot of you guys are probably in home studios. So, you know, I would definitely invest in one. A Sans amp is a great thing to do you know, for that distorted bass sound if you need it, or just a little bit of grit, and it does sound different. It has a different sound, I mean, than just the direct. I'm going to play you a clip of the direct sound and then the Sans amp. So pretty different from each other, right? I mean, and but both totally usable. Or the Sans amp has a parallel out, which is basically a dry out. So that would be like your direct, your dry signal. Um, it's totally unprocessed. Then you can record that as well as the actual affected output. So you could record both. And uh, so your bass could have the dirty channel and then the clean direct with nothing on it. And, you know, you'd get that sound and you could combine or mix and match or move one higher and lower, you know, EQ one this way, EQ the other this way, compress them the same or different. There's tons of options there. I mean, for 200 bucks, I can't think of a better way to start getting different bass sounds in your studio. For example, I had a bass player in the other day that really liked that distorted amp sound, but I wanted to record the direct. And so the problem was... Uh, he didn't really have the right amp to get that sound, and he knew that. And so he said, well, you know, do you have any pedals or whatever that we could use? And, uh, you know, so I said, well, I have the Sans amp. And so what I was able to do was we were able to get sort of a distorted, really nasty, gritty bass tone that he could have in his headphones. But I recorded that along with um, the direct sound so that if we needed to, you know, reamp it later, we could, if we wanted to, you know, send it off to a friend of mine who's got a bass amp and he could reamp it, you know, maybe that would work. Um, but we'd have, we'd have options, you know, but he didn't have to just sit there and play the song with the clean DI. You know, he had the ability to get a sound fairly close to sort of the, this is how I want it mixed sound and then still record the DI. So it's great, great for that. Now we're going to shift in a little bit to talking about what do you put on bass when you're recording. Do I, you know, do I put EQ or compression? If I'm recording just a direct bass guitar, I generally don't put 
any EQ on the DI, but if I'm using the Sans amp or something, obviously there's EQ on there. I'll mess with that. Um, I'll sort of use that as my experimental channel and I'll make that sound interesting and cool and fit the vibe of the song even if it's not really distorted but I'll EQ it and I'll compress it crazy or you know maybe not so crazy but I'll, I'll make that one sound really special and then the direct I'll pretty much keep dry however I do generally put a little bit of compression now my favorite compressors for bass uh, while recording are the TubeTech CL1B and the Empirical Labs Distressor. Now, both of these are pretty expensive compressors, um, but there are some great other ones that you can buy that are cheap, and I, and I thoroughly recommend um, having at least one nice analog compressor for recording, you know, for vocals or for bass or for, like, snare drum, just for three main reasons. One, they sound great. They, they give it a sound. They give it something different that it didn't have before, just running through the electronics. Two, it can help prevent the most important things that you're trying to record from clipping, which, you know, will cause you to have to do it again. And um, that's just a pain. Now... If you're recording at a decent level, you shouldn't really have to worry about clipping. But, you know, there are certain instances when a drummer will get really excited and hit a really loud snare hit, and it might clip just that one hit, and you can't redo it. So having a compressor, you know, I love the Distressor. It's sort of a good all-rounder. Um, there's also the DBX160 series, which is nice. I, I, I like the 160X and the 160A, and... Uh, to be honest, I've never used the 160 VU, but everyone seems to think that's sort of the the one to get. Now, it's kind of expensive, even for a used one on eBay. Um, but, you know, I've got a handful of the 160As, just, you know, if I need a little bit of extra compression on something. Um, they're a really nice sort of general soft knee compressor, and uh, they have a great sound, you know, for pretty cheap, you know, 500 bucks um, for a DBX-160A. And uh, I think it's got like a 10 millisecond attack or something like that. Um, and you can obviously make it pretty subtle. But, you know, I'll use it on bass every now and then. It sounds really nice. I'll use it on kick drum sometimes. And uh, there's also some compressors, you know, the, the FMR RNC. It's a very cheap compressor, but a lot of people really like it um, for a lot of different duties. And it's a really great sort of general compressor that, uh, you know, you can get for like 200 bucks. Um, but yeah, I, I thoroughly recommend having some sort of compressor on the way in. Now, generally what you're trying to do on the way in is, um, is, is, is prevent things from, from peaking too much or from getting too transient heavy, like really peaky transients that are like overly loud on snare drum or on bass or like if the bass just slaps the string or something, you know, that, that can really be a pretty aggressive sound. And so generally like on bass, I might run... 4 to 1, 6 to 1, 8 to 1, somewhere in that region. I don't generally go like super limiting like 20 to 1 or, or 100 to 1 or something. And I don't generally go super low like 1 and a half to 1 or 2. I'll stick somewhere in the middle. 6 generally seems to be about my favorite for bass, 6 to 1 on the Distressor specifically. And then, you know, medium attack and then the release, depending on the song and the speed sometimes i just flip the release to the be the fastest so that it dips in the you know on the transients and then goes away um sometimes i'll even run multiple compressors live it just depends i mean it really depends on the sound it depends how committed we're we are to the sound that we like you know if the bassist says you know that's close, it's not quite there, and then you run it through another compressor or a different compressor setting, and he's like, that's it, I love that sound, then why not record it that way, you know? I've got quite a bit of compressors at my disposal, just things that I've collected over the years, but you don't have to spend 3,000 bucks to get an amazing compressor, you know? Some, some compressors, like I said, that I, you could say I endorse, I'm not like actually endorsed by them, but that I love and that I use, you know, the distressors are awesome. You can find one used for about a thousand bucks. And, you know, you can use that on anything and it will sound amazing and it will really help your sounds. I, I can guarantee you. Um, but the DBX 160 series, 160A, 160X, um, I wouldn't get any of the, the cheaper ones than that. Um, those are a little bit different made. They're probably made, you know, with cheaper components. But like the 160A, 160X, or the 160VU are great. Those three. 
And um, the FMR RNC is really nice too. It's cheap if you're just getting into the whole analog compression thing. I highly recommend that one. Um, there's plenty others, you know, you can look it up. Um, just something to just give you a little more control on the way in. And, uh, you know, you might be of the persuasion that, you know, oh, it, it has to be pure on the way in. I don't want anything, you know, messing it up. Well, that's sort of a new philosophy that I was just talking about with my intern the other day. He was asking me about that and we were talking about it. And, uh, you know, we both agree that there's no reason you shouldn't record with EQ and compression unless you're really just trying to record like orchestral music or like, you know, maybe voiceovers or, or something like that, that you really need to be perfect, you know, but if it's, if it's any sort of music that's going to be on the radio or any sort of music that's going to have some attitude to it, um, not even just rock, you know, pop or hip hop or anything, you know, back in the day, back in the, the golden age of music, right? The, the seventies and sixties and eighties and nineties. And you know what, apparently we're not in the golden age anymore. I don't know. There's still lots of great things coming out now, but whatever, like everyone says sixties and seventies, right? That's sort of the, the golden age. Well, they had consoles. Okay. That was their primary way of recording things. And almost everything would get EQ and compression. I mean, maybe not compression, but almost everything would get EQ on the way to tape just because, you know, you had it. It was on every channel, so why not use it? Now, certain consoles way back in the day, like, uh, you know, stuff from Universal Audio, those early consoles, the Bill Putnam, those might not have had EQ at all. And um, it wasn't until, you know, 50s, 60s where people started using Pultex and stuff like that. And then late 60s, API started doing their stuff and Neve came out and then all this stuff happened in the 70s with all these Neve and all these brands. And then once SSL came out, once the SSL boards came out, you know, there was a gate and compressors and EQs and pre's on every channel. And so it was like, oh my gosh, you know, we can have all this control on every channel. And a lot of people would use it. I mean, a lot of people would record with the gates and the compressors and the EQs and all that stuff. So, you know, don't feel like you have to make this like perfectly clean, clear sound. Just know that it takes experience and time to get used to um, compressing these things or EQing these things on the way in so where you know what you have to do um, because you can overdo it. You can very easily. Over time, you'll be like, oh man, okay, I need to only compress maybe just a few dB on the way in, like two or three. You know, what am I trying to accomplish, right? That's what you have to ask yourself. What am I trying to accomplish with the compression live or with EQ live? Well, you know, you might just need a little bit of top end or, you know, maybe take out a little top end or take out a little bottom or add a little bottom. I would definitely suggest not going crazy on the EQ live because, you know, you know, when I say not going crazy, I mean really crazy. I mean, but if you're turning knobs and it sounds awesome, then leave it. You know, don't feel guilty. All bets are off. You know, all's fair in love and war and audio engineering. So go for it. Okay, now we're going to talk about bass in the mix. How can you get the bass to fit in the mix and work with the drums and work with the kick drum? I mean, everyone seems to have this problem getting bass and drums to fit together, getting the bass and the kick to sound tight. Well, let's talk about it. In this example song, I took the drums and the synth from a song that I recorded here, um, and basically it is a situation where the bass line is melodic enough to stand on its own. You know, bass, drums, and synth sounds pretty good. Now, I really truly think that a good bass player will play interesting enough lines that they can do such a thing, where they'll stand and they'll be interesting by themselves. So that's one thing to talk about is that the bass lines themselves are really important. And sometimes simple is better, but sometimes something a little more melodic is better. If you want some tips on that, go back and listen to the show, the session show with Les, the bass player. He has some great tips on playing and things like that and, and how to choose parts and lines and whatnot. So um, go check that out if you need more info on that. But uh, basically, I'm going to hook up the bass and uh, play the bass line to this song. And it's going to be dry, but we're going to figure out how to mix it in in just a second. You might have to turn up your speakers a little because I wanted to make sure that this wasn't like compressed. Uh, I wanted it to be full bandwidth.
Okay, so, yeah, fair enough. That's an intro to a song, and uh, first thing I would like to talk about, and we talked about this briefly in the bass show with Les, is the way that that was played. Now, that was obviously played with the fingers, well, maybe not obviously, but if you look, I'm looking right now at the waveforms, um, I am playing slightly behind the beat on almost every hit. Now, that's on purpose. Now, it's not that I'm really late. Um, I mean, we're talking about... I mean, fractions of a second, fractions of a beat. I mean, we're talking about a 64th note difference. I mean, it's something that you learn to play. As you play more bass, you learn to play it that way. Um, so what I'm going to actually do is I'm going to play you an example, and this is going to take me a little bit to edit this, but again, you won't have to wait. I'm going to play you an example of me playing right on top of the drum hits. So if you zoom up to the bass and drums, you know, you should be able to visibly see that the bass hits are coming a little bit after the kick hits if you want to get that tight sound. Um, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually edit them. I'm going to shove the hits forward. So you're going to hear them sort, sort of clashing with the bass and the kick together. So let's hear that. Now this is that same clip, but um, the original, so the one where I played a little bit behind the beat. And this is how most bassists play naturally. Now, if you hear the difference between those, if you go back and listen to the difference, what you'll notice is that in the first clip, the bass actually sounds louder. It doesn't fit in the mix. It doesn't sit in the mix as well. Why? Because it's stepping over the kick drum. In the second clip, the bass sounds like it fits in the mix more, and that's because it does, because it's fitting more with the drums. So that's the first thing. If you need to edit the bass, then go for it. Obviously, it would be best to record it that way, but sometimes you don't have all that time to just get there and make sure every hit is perfect. And, you know, not many bassists, um, you know, when they're in the studio are really thinking about that as much as they're just trying to play with the drums. You know, they're not thinking about the super specifics unless it's a very seasoned bassist, a very tasty bassist that understands how he is supposed to fit with a kick. And if he doesn't know, if he doesn't realize that he's supposed to fit with the kick, then you need to tell him. You need to explain it to him. And, uh, you know, don't be a jerk about it or anything, but, you know, explain it to him like I'm explaining to you that, you know, the kick hit is, you know, the sort of, if you look at the waveform, it's sort of the triangle-shaped, you know, waveform. And the uh, bass has sort of a, you know, generally the bass has sort of a softer, sort of rounded um, shape to the waveform. And uh, almost like a, like a meteor or something, you know, it looks kind of like a meteor uh, with like the tail coming behind it, you know. Um, and uh, so it has sort of a point, but that needs to fit just directly after the kick hit, not on it, but directly after it. So where, you know, you have the kick and then the bass sustains and uh, just zoom up on a kick and a bass right next to each other. Put the tracks next to each other and you'll see what I'm talking about. They should be pretty darn close, but not on top of each other because literally that's what it will sound like. It will sound like they're playing on top of each other. So once you get that, you can mess with a little bit with uh, compression and EQ and whatnot. Um, so now what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to EQ this a little bit to make it fit a little more. And I'm going to do it sort of like we talked about in the last show about how to EQ by turning the bass up and down and, uh, then finding the sweet spot where it sounds right and adjusting from there. Listen to that show if you need to understand more in depth what I'm talking about. So this is me going to EQ the bass and you'll be hearing it as I'm EQing it. Thank you. 
so my bass is basically EQ'd. Um, you know, I didn't do anything super fancy. Basically, all I did was uh, after I turned the bass up to where it would fit over the drums, then I heard that, okay, maybe there's a little too much in the 150 to 200 region. And there usually is on a lot of basses. Uh, there's either not enough or there's too much. And um, so in that region is a really critical region. And uh, on my particular bass, because I've used it on so many recordings, I find that, you know, generally it needs a boost, um, maybe in some lows, depending on the track, maybe not, um, but it almost always will need some sort of a cut around 150, 180, 200, 220, uh, somewhere in there. And so that's what I did. Uh, I swept it around until it found the spot exactly, and it's going to change based on the notes that you're playing, so don't ever really think that you can, you know, just find, oh, my bass is always has a resonance at 200. Maybe not. It, I mean, it depends on the key of the song, too, and depends on the strings and all those things. So um, I dipped some around one, let's see, it looks like 180, and I boosted a shelf below 100, or below 80, I guess, and I boosted some around 1K, and uh, I cut a shelf above 4K. So that's really it. I mean, there's just four bands, really simple, um, you know, 3 dB each, maybe, nothing really crazy. And uh, now here's one thing. Now that I've boosted some lows, I want to make sure that it's still really tight with the kick. So um, what I'm going to do is listen to, let me see here, I'm going to listen to the drums and by themselves and just sort of find the sweet spot of the kick drum and see where that is. Okay, so basically uh, on my spectrum analyzer, it looks like the kick drum is centered around, uh, when the kick hits, it's somewhere around like 70 uh, hertz. So basically I'm going to just double check with the bass and listen to see if maybe it sounds better if I cut a little bit on the bass at 70 hertz, just a little bit. I mean, we're talking very pretty narrow cue, you know, um, not like super narrow, but just enough to let the kick come through just a little more. Okay, so probably what you heard is me, I was boosting up at uh, 70 hertz there, just a little bit by 3 or 4 or 5 dB, and just so I could hear if, you know, if that was creating some masking with the kick. So what I ended up doing was dipping about 3 dB at 70 hertz with a Q of 3. So not super narrow, um, but yeah, I just dipped a little bit and uh, around that frequency so that the kick could still come through, and then I turned up the bass uh, the fader by about a dB. So the next thing we're going to do is compress the bass and this will help the notes seem a little more even. And uh, there's lots of different choices to use on bass compressors. Um, a lot of people really like to do parallel compression on the bass where they have a totally dry channel of bass and then they have one that's uh, fairly compressed and then they blend in the compressed one. I like to do that quite a bit. Um, a lot of people will use like an 1176 or something like that or an LA-2, LA-3, there's so many. Um, basically, all I can really say with this is you have to experiment and you have to find preferences that you like, you know, things that you like. And sure, I do prefer a lot of analog compressors, but in the box, um, my favorite compressor for bass is the SoftTube FET compressor, um, which is kind of like an 1176, but there's a little, there's more options on it. Like there's an option for, you know, uh, parallel. So you can actually just do parallel compression on the plugin without having to duplicate the channel, which is really nice. Um, there's a, there's some detector options, you know, which are really nice for things like snare drum or vocals or, uh, lots of things really, even bass sometimes. Um, but, uh, it's just a great sounding compressor. So here is, uh, the bass compressed about, let me see here, about six to one, uh, well, some 5 to 1 maybe, uh, 5 to 1, medium slow attack, and medium fast release um, with about, 
maybe 70%, uh, 70% wet. I mean, mostly wet, uh, but a little more, just a, a touch of the dry signal mixed in. And we're compressing a total of around 5 dB average. So why did I compress the bass, you might be asking yourself? Because I wanted the notes to seem like they were a little more even in volume. Um, and I also wanted to give the bass a little more tightness, a little more tightness with the drums. Just a reminder, this is what it sounded like with no processing. And with... Okay, so as you can hear, in the first clip, the bass was a little bit muddy. I mean, it was there, it sounded fine, but uh, it didn't really poke out but fit in at the same time. You know, it's funny how that's sort of what you're trying to do. You're, you're wanting something to be distinct and pop out at you, but at the same time, you want it to blend in. So that's always the challenge. Um, so again, just a little review. We recorded the bass, you know, we put new strings on it, we recorded it direct through, um, you know, we tried the sans amp but i chose not to do that for this song and uh you know we didn't use any eq or compression on the way in but uh then we eq'd it a little bit we added some low end with a shelf we took out some 180 we added some 1k and we took out a shelf above 4k and then uh we let's see here uh added a compressor compressing anywhere between 3 and 7 db um, mostly around 4 or 5, but around between 3 and 7 dB with a slow attack, fast release-ish, medium-slow, medium-fast, on this particular compressor. You know, I'm not exactly sure what the numbers are, um, but uh, then a little bit of the dry signal blended in with the compressed signal, about 70% compressed and about 30% dry, and about 6 to 1 ratio. And uh, yeah, and that's pretty much it. That's all we did to make it fit. And, uh, you know, there are tons of other options that you can do. You know, I've got a video up on YouTube of me describing um, side-chaining between kick and bass. And that's another great technique where if the bass player didn't really play perfectly tight with the drums, it's a great technique that you can use to get them both loud and proud, but, uh, you know, dip the bass a little bit when the kick drum hits. That's essentially what you're doing. Um, it's called side-chain compression. And you can look it up on YouTube. Just search for uh, side-chaining kick and bass innuendo, I believe is what the video is called or something like that. So look up that. I hope this was useful to you. Now, if you have any questions about this stuff, you know, if you have any questions about bass or how we did this, or I know it's a little difficult to sort of grasp all this without actually seeing it, but I tried the best I could with um, just the audio demos for you to understand what I was doing and uh, tried to bring you through my thought processes. But, you know, that's about all I will do on a bass. Now, there's one other instance, um, and that's in a rock-type song, more of a rock-type song. Uh, the song that we worked with mostly today was a pop song, um, sort of a pop-rock song, if you will. And uh, if this were a rock tune, what I might do is duplicate the bass track and, you know, distort it or send it out to the sans amp or to a guitar amp or to a bass amp and just have a different sound with those and, you know, and combine them and blend a distorted one and the clean one and just see how that works, you know, because there's so many things you can do. And uh, again, if you had a sans amp or a good bass amp, then you could record it that way. You could record it with those devices, uh, clean and processed, and just blend them and see what works. You know, sometimes you can actually get away with a pretty dirty sound on a bass amp or a uh, sans amp or something like that and blend it in with the clean just a little and it sounds awesome. Um, it's pretty amazing how much distortion a bass can actually withstand in a mix. 
And um, why would you want to distort a bass in the first place? Well, because it brings out the harmonics in the bass. It brings out those upper registers that help it cut, especially on smaller speakers. There are probably quite a few songs that have some sort of distortion on the bass, then you wouldn't even notice it unless you soloed up the bass. Um, and uh, that's actually how quite a few things are. You know, um, all these little bits of distortion added up over time from the mics to the preamps to the, you know, the actual guitar amps that they're using or the pedals or whatever. You know, there's all little tiny bits of distortion. Or if they're recording to tape, you know, if they're recording into a tube compressor, it's these tiny little bits of distortion that add up over time to create a really harmonically rich sound. So remember, replace the strings, tighten up all the screws on the bass, make sure it sounds solid and feels solid, you know, experiment with different preamps for running into solid state preamps like the API preamp or the UA preamp or even something really clean like a P solo sounds really great or the FMR RNC sounds really nice on bass too. There's lots of budget preamps, you know, don't feel like you got to get some $10,000 setup to get a good sounding bass. I'm telling you, if you're if you feel like, "Oh my gosh, you know, I don't have a ton of money for really expensive preamps or compressors or whatever." I'm telling you, get a really nice set of bass strings and most of your problems will be solved. You know, get a brand new set of bass strings, 20 bucks or 30 bucks, and that's going to be awesome. It's going to help a ton. And, uh, you know, make sure the bass is not noisy or whatever. Um, one thing I've noticed is don't sit as, as a person. Here's, here's something, a, t a tip for guitar or bass. As a person recording yourself, if you're at home recording yourself, don't sit at the computer desk when you record yourself. It's very tempting, um, but it's very easy to get noise on the pickups. So I suggest getting a guitar cable and, you know, standing in the room, in the middle of the room or something, away from the speakers. And use headphones if you want, or just play it loud over the speakers. But if you sit closer to your computer or to your gear, it's very easy to get hum. And uh, you can't really get that out later. So, you know, if you want to grab a, grab a uh, Tech 21 Sans Amp, I definitely love it. Um, it's really awesome. Um, and it's got the parallel out. There's plenty of videos of it on YouTube and whatnot. So, um, all right, well, I hope this has been helpful for you guys. If you have any questions, uh, email me at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. And I do freelance mixing and mastering, so you can send me your files over the web, and uh, I can mix or master or both your music. Now, there's a little discount if you get both of them together, too, because that just saves time on both ends. So... Uh, Email me about either of those things. Email me about questions you have about anything about studio stuff. Email me with suggestions for new shows, and uh, I will talk to you guys soon. I hope you enjoy the first day of your new year.